1: Do you ever feel that even though nothing seems seriously wrong, and you pass all the medical tests, that you still feel that your health, pain, and fatigue are completely out of control? It doesn't have to be that way. Listen to the tips and suggestions given on our program today, and take back control of your health.
2: Now, here is Dr. Rebecca Risk. Hi everybody, welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk, and today we're talking with Jo Stepanik. She is the author and co-author of more than two dozen books on cooking, health, and compassionate living. She has dealt with multiple food sensitivities and understands firsthand the challenges of living with dietary restrictions. Today we're discussing her book, Low FODMAP and Vegan. So Jo, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Can you tell me um, what brought you to write this book about vegan and low FODMAP?
3: Sure. Well, I've been vegan for um, a number of decades, and I've had uh, digestive issues pretty much my entire life. And I'd have to say I've had IBS for pretty much all that time as well, but it wasn't diagnosed until I was well into adulthood. And having uh, digestive issues on top of having a somewhat what many people consider a restricted diet having a totally plant-based diet becomes extremely complex and challenging and very difficult and It's also very isolating, and I wanted to provide information and resources that I came across for my own needs and my own reasons for people who felt alone and didn't know where to turn.
2: So, um, you know, I think this is really common. I think digestive issues are are, uh, among the most common complaints that I see anyway, um, or they come along with other complaints. I don't think anybody's without digestive issues. But IBS um, is you know, a, a separate thing from just some random stuff. Can you explain to us a little bit more what what that means? Well, IBS, as you mentioned, most people have digestive issues
3: from time to time when they eat certain foods or make the wrong thing or they eat too much of something um, or they just eat too much. But for people with the irritable bowel syndrome, uh, which we shorten to call IBS, it's a chronic unrelenting intestinal disorder and it can be very painful it can be very disruptive to a person's life and it's actually pretty common Um, it occurs with uh, frequency of between 1 in 10 to as many as 1 in 5 people around the world and Canada, surprisingly, has one of the highest rates. We don't know why, but it, but it does. Um, and essentially, irritable bowel syndrome presents with a variety of. Chronic symptoms, but these symptoms can change on a daily basis, and they can change even on an hourly basis. Um, So, and it's and they vary from person to person. It's a it's a very um, hard to pin down ailment because it has so many variations and variables. But in most people, it presents with bloating, and that bloating can be severe. Some people feel as though they look close to eight or nine months pregnant when they have bloating. It can be really obvious, and the pants that you had on that morning may not fit a couple of hours later, uh, which is pretty awful. Um, It primarily presents as an alteration in bowel habits, and that can be either chronic constipation chronic diarrhea, or alternating from one to the other. It also includes pain and cramping. So it's a pretty uncomfortable problem.
2: Yeah, it, it um, you know definitely as you said it can um, it is uncomfortable and it, it sounds like obviously um, a little bit life consuming. You know, if your pants don't fit, you're going to be picking clothes that are a little bit different, and, right? So that you're you're comfortable. Um, but with with this syndrome, because that's what um, it is. How is this diagnosed? That is a good
3: question. It is extremely difficult to diagnose because there really haven't been the physical markers that there are with many other digestive disorders such as inflammatory bowel disease which encompasses Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. So, essentially, the way it's diagnosed is as a as a, it's considered a diagnosis of exclusion. Basically, and primarily, people have to go through many different types of tests to exclude other more serious illnesses, such as inflammatory bowel disease or cancer, to come to the diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome. Fortunately... Researchers are developing tests that will help to shorten the diagnosis time, and also many people who have IBS end up going from doctor to doctor to doctor because, as with many ailments that aren't really obvious in terms of their source... IBS is is so hard to pin down and many doctors simply say it's all in your head and that can be the most frustrating thing ever. So we are forced almost to go from doctor to doctor or just not go anywhere. Many people with IBS wait years before going to a physician or they just get so fed up with being told that it's just nothing, it'll go away, it's all in your head, that they just don't do anything. So it's terribly, terribly frustrating to get a diagnosis and, and has been. But with these new tests that are coming out, it's helping to shorten that time. It's also giving people, there's, there's been a discovery of a biomarker for some types of IBS So it's giving validation to people who have been dismissed by the conventional medical um, system previously.
2: Well, you know, and I I think aside from being dismissed by the medical system or just having difficulty getting it recognized because when there's no test for something, I think it is difficult for them to, to realize there's something going on. But I know if you're limited by food or you're having food issues, it's really hard to be social as well because that's a big part of our society is food and drink. And if those things are bothering you, um, you're either, you know, different at a party or you just don't want to go. Oh, that is so true.
3: (laughs) It is so true. And it's very difficult because one of the um, aspects of IBS is bathroom urgency, you need to go now. Even if you don't have diarrhea predominant, you still might have urgency. So when you go out, you need to look where the bathrooms are. You need to find that there are going to be public facilities that you can use. You need to hope that there isn't a long line. You know, there are so many concerns. And when you socialize, you have to be concerned. Are you going to have to be limited in what you can eat? Are people going to be watching that you're not eating anything because you're concerned something is going to trigger your symptoms? You're concerned that you might have have a serious episode of um, gas, and that could be horribly embarrassing. There are so many issues that when you have a, a bowel problem that is chronic can be horrifying
2: and embarrassing and socially inhibiting,
3: and some people just stay
2: home. Um, you know, this is something that I've I've heard before as well. So I'm glad we're talking about it because your book has some good solutions to help people control this. Um, but before we get into the fodmap part, I want to discuss um, what what being vegan means.
3: Being vegan is um, for many people an ethical choice, and for some people, it's just a dietary choice. Um, the it. Basically, for the people who's an ethical choice, it extends beyond diet, but in terms of food, it's... A diet that is totally plant-based, one that includes no animal products whatsoever. So that excludes meat, um, fish, fowl, anything that is derived from an animal such as dairy products or eggs or even honey. So um, it really encompasses all animal products, but what it does include are all plant foods which are Quite extensive, so it sounds like it's restrictive initially, but really it's broadly inclusive and actually includes a lot more foods than the majority of people who have a meat-centered diet normally would consume.
2: So if, there's a lot of um, press about being vegan recently. There's a, a bit of a um, more awareness about it, I guess you could say. Um, but what are some of the reasons that people would choose to be a vegan? Well, there are
3: a lot of reasons. I think one of the main ones for many people is health. They believe, and for many good reasons, many valid reasons, that having a plant-based diet or even if they don't go fully vegan, a more plant-based diet will improve their health. And many people have found that it helps with lowering cholesterol, lowering blood pressure, weight loss, um, type 2 diabetes, many issues that are considered to be diet-related can be resolved with a healthful vegan diet. Of course, we have to remember that there are foods that are vegan that are not healthful, so I had to add that in because you could have a, a Diet of Oreos and potato chips, and it would still be vegan, but it wouldn't <laughs> be helpful. <laughs>
2: of course. Uh. <laughs> um, so, um, when when people are choosing to be vegan, I know one of the concerns is the amount of protein they're getting, because as a, uh, I, I think most people in society see that our diet should be meat based. And where do you find people are getting their sources of protein from?
3: Oh, there are so many. Surprisingly, broccoli is high in protein. You wouldn't think it, but virtually every plant food has protein except for sugar and alcohol. Uh, There is protein in in essentially every plant-based food. So the only way that somebody on a totally vegan diet would be deprived of protein would be if they are not eating enough calories and they are starving.
2: Okay, or they're eating potato chips and orange. <laughs> <laughs> Which probably wouldn't help their IBS either. I'm guessing. Oh, no, it wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, yeah. Do you find that this, like, veganism is becoming more popular and it must be easier to do than you say you've been doing it for decades. So is it a lot easier to follow than it used to be? It is, um, definitely,
3: especially for people who want to have foods that are comparable to those that are animal-based and that they might miss. There are plenty of and have always been plenty of unprocessed foods, such as whole grains and beans and vegetables and fruits, that are just naturally vegan and um, available. But for people who want to have sort of the comfort processed foods that they might have grown up with, such as dairy products or cheese replacements or meat replacements, there are oodles of them, many that were not available even a decade ago and certainly not two or three decades ago. There's a slew of vegan, non-dairy milks available, made from almost every conceivable food, um, such as quinoa or hemp seed or oat milk, uh, uh, along with the ones that we're more familiar with, such as soy milk and almond milk and rice milk. It's just, the the options are just endless today, so... We have many, many, many choices depending on the type of diet that you want to follow because there isn't just one vegan diet. There are many ways to be vegan, just like there are many ways to um, have a a meat-based diet.
2: Okay. Well, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, Today we're talking with Joe Stepanek, who um, is the author of the book Low FODMAP and Vegan, and we're just discussing what that means today. So we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back shortly
4: Much of the time, the illnesses that people feel are simply symptoms and they mask the root cause of what the real health problem is. You can take back control of your own health, starting with billionaire healthcare. This program is hosted by Ashley Black. Our program will introduce you to fascia, which is the knowledge of the living matrix. This bit of knowledge can bring you the health secrets that only the rich and famous have known. Until now. Listen Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness.
0: Step by step, you made it through the journey of pregnancy. Now your baby is in your arms, and you're on the cusp of a new journey, breastfeeding. As a new parent, you receive a lot of advice, much of it conflicting, some of it outdated. Tune into Born to be Breastfed with host Marie Biancuzo to bust through the myths about feeding your baby. Marie and her guests will help you figure out what you can expect and put you on the best and surest path on your breastfeeding journey. Listen every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
4: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
2: Welcome back to Falling Through the Cracks. Today we're talking with Jo Stepanek. She's the author of the book Low FODMAP and Vegan. So, Jo, um, can you just explain what the FODMAP part is?
3: Well, FODMAPs are its an acronym for short-chain carbohydrates that can cause problems for many people with IBS, and they're found naturally in a huge range of foods, and the majority of these foods are plant-based. Um, it stands for um, fermentable. That's the, the important part. For, that's where the F comes in. Fermentable, oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. And those are all the different types of these carbohydrates that can be problematic.
2: So um, just because we're talking a lot about the FODMAP, I'd like to discuss what what each of these is, um, just so that people can get an idea about what we're talking about. Because um, I think as we go into this, it'll become more aware that it is actually something difficult to do if you're vegan. Um, so, yeah, what are the oligosaccharides? Well, um, these
3: are actually, all of them are, are, like I said, fermentable, and they're commonly malabsorbed sugars and fibers. And the oligosaccharide category includes the fibers in wheat, beans, garlic, onion. So there are many foods in that category, but those are some of the main ones. So you can see just by that category how challenging it can be to be vegan because, first of all, beans are um, a very um, sort of a basic source of protein, protein you know, on a plant-based diet, and garlic and onion are ubiquitous. It's hard to find almost any food, any prepared food, whether it's prepared by somebody at home or whether it's packaged or whether it's fresh in a deli department that doesn't contain garlic or onion.
2: Um, that is true yeah <laughs> <laughs> they are, they are pretty common and and you know a lot of people think if you're a vegan that the, the beans are going to be your your protein replacement right right yeah which you may have difficulty with now there are some beans that are better than others in this category
3: yeah. And also the way they're prepared makes a difference. So canned beans, surprisingly, will be lower in FODMAPs than cooked, home-cooked dried beans. And um, the lentils, the small lentils, are lower in FODMAPs. And chickpeas are one of the larger beans that are on the lower side but it's important to just have a small quantity of them to avoid triggers for most people.
2: Okay. And so do people just kind of figure out, I guess we'll talk about that later, how much they can have and, and how they must get affected differently by different things, even if they're in a certain category. Right. Well, a lot of the FODMAPs overlap. So one
3: food might be might have a couple different types of FODMAPs in it. So I don't always um, advocate that people look up Well, what category does this food fall in because I need to avoid this particular category because then it starts to get really complicated and really difficult. And um, I don't want people to, to have to worry like that. I know I don't want to have to worry like that. So although it's important to know that to have a general idea of what falls in what category, focusing on that sort of makes it, it harder for people to follow rather than just looking at the foods that are problematic for them. But one good thing um, is that the disaccharide category is lactose. That's the only item in that category. And so for vegans, that's eliminated immediately. <laughs> that
2: makes it easier. It <laughs> that category sure. does. <laughs> so now, if somebody's listening and they're, they're not vegan, see, they're either vegetarian or they are a meat eater, but interested in this, in that category, I know there are some cheeses that are lactose free. Are those eliminated from that category? So those would be okay?
3: Right. Anything that would be. Lactose-free, um, for people who do eat dairy products, hard cheeses are low in um, FODMAP, so those would be acceptable for people who do eat dairy products. And there are some uh, dairy products, I believe, that are lactose-free in terms of, um, I think, dairy milk and uh, some yogurts, but you'd have to read the label to check
2: Okay. And what are the monosaccharides?
3: The monosaccharides um, are basically fructose, and that's found in uh, many fruits, of course, but there are some that are worse than others, such as apples and pears. Honey is high in fructose, and of course high fructose corn syrup you'd want to avoid. And agave nectar, agave syrup, uh, is also High, and that is another syrup, another sweetener that is common in a lot of vegan recipes and foods because people are trying to move away from processed sugar, but that is particularly high in FODMAP. So it's not good for people with IBS. Dates are another problem because they're another food that has been used to replace sugar, and so. In many recipes, especially raw food recipes, people sort of um, are thrilled that there are dates and no sugar. But for people with IBS, those foods are are generally off limits. Okay, and then the polyols. The polyols encompass um, another group, and again, some of the. Um, Foods in the monosaccharides group, such as apples, also fall into the polyols. Um, And those uh, apples and pears also are high in monosaccharides. Watermelon, mushrooms, cauliflower, and all stone fruits, such as peaches or nectarines. And then any artificial sweetener that... um, it falls into that category as well. For many people, those artificial sweeteners can cause diarrhea, even if you don't have IBS. So they're pretty bad.
2: Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's uh, pretty common anyway. So, um, what are some examples of some of the the foods that I, I guess would be considered the worst in the FODMAP area? Because you say some overlap. So, um, are there some that You know, just kind of bother everybody because they overlap more.
3: Um, Not necessarily. Some people do well with with some of the foods that are high in FODMAP that tend to affect the majority of people. There are some because IBS is just so insidious and hard to figure out. Triggers vary from person to person greatly, but the the benefit of knowing about FODMAPs is that it helps people with IBS narrow down potential triggers because without this capability. We're sort of shooting in the dark. We, it, it's impossible to figure out what might be causing our symptoms. So now we have sort of a roadmap to help us do that. But um, garlic and onions are some of the worst offenders. Onions have perhaps a greater concentration of FODMAPs than most other foods. So for most people, that, they tend to be problematic. Um, <laughs> and cashews, uh, pistachios, those are uh, big ones, and wheat. Now, wheat is, is kind of an oddball because it's not the gluten in wheat that's problematic. It's the fiber in wheat. So when gluten is extracted from wheat um, and used to make seitan, the satan is fine. What remains is not. So that's um, an interesting paradigm that most people don't understand. That being on a low FODMAP diet does not mean a gluten-free diet.
2: Okay, so it just means. But wheat is an issue because of the FODMAP in it. Right. Right. Okay. So if somebody is thinking that this is might be something that's bothering them or wanting to try it out, do they just eliminate all of these at once to see what's going on, if that makes a difference for them?
3: Yes. Basically, there are three stages to the low FODMAP plan. And initially, the elimination phase means that pretty much all FODMAP-rich foods are avoided for a certain period of time and generally that's recommended for two to four to eight weeks depending on how you feel and and how you're doing um, for some people it's easier to sort out their triggers in a shorter amount of time for other people they might feel better the longer that they're on it But it's not intended to be a lifelong total elimination process. So after that initial period um, of of several weeks to two months, there's a reintroduction phase. And then foods are methodically reintroduced so that you can help narrow down which are your particular triggers. And... An interesting thing is that you might have, certain foods might trigger symptoms for you at certain periods and not at others. So if you're under stress, you haven't had good sleep, you're eating a lot of other high FODMAP foods, you might be triggering your symptoms when you have these high FODMAP items at a time when they may not really exacerbate things if if these other things weren't going on in your life,
2: so um, when people are reintroducing the food, um, the foods do they do one at a time to see what's happening? Yes. It's better to do one at a time and then give yourself
3: a couple days and maybe add that food back in again, maybe in a larger quantity, and see how you do. Because if you add everything back in at once, you won't be able to narrow down which one is the problem. So, yeah, you know, it can take some time, but it's worth it. And you might find that you can have a small amount of a high FODMAP food and you don't have to eliminate it entirely. Size is so important, portion size. So that's, that's really vital to keep in mind. You may not have to eliminate all legumes or just have lentils or chickpeas. You might be able to have other legumes, but just in very small amounts.
2: So um, wh- when, when you were doing this, were there some foods that you found were definitely huge triggers for you more than others? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I tend to have, be
3: sensitive to almost everything. So, But the, the, the vital thing for me with the low FODMAP diet is that I'm actually able to pinpoint now the problem foods. And for me, there are many of them, but there was a period where I thought I couldn't eat anything except water and air. And so having some guidance to know which food's could potentially be problematic for me, really helped. It actually opened up more foods to me than I thought I could have. So that was really valuable.
2: Well, I can imagine if you're eating, say you put onions and garlic in all your meals because you know they're good for you, you think you're reacting to everything, and it could just be this, you know, little things that you're adding to it. Right. And you're you're not aware that that's something that's going on. Or you're vegan, so you're eating beans at every meal. (laughs) Right, right, (laughs) right, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And then, you you know, you just think, oh, I have I have problems because there's garlic and everything and you don't know that. So you can't end up going in those cycles. So I can understand where that brought you more doors just by removing those little things. And then you probably stopped reacting to more things, more meals than you had before. Right. Right. Exactly.
3: (laughs) And I I discovered what I could have safely. So that really just made life a lot better.
2: Okay. Well, we're going to take a quick break. We're talking today with Jo Stepanek. She's the author of the book Low FODMAP and Vegan. So we're going to be back shortly. Tune in.
4: Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Much of the time, the illnesses that people feel are simply symptoms, and they mask the root cause of what the real health problem is. You can take back control of your own health starting with Billionaire healthcare, This program is hosted by Ashley Black. Our program will introduce you to fascia, which is the knowledge of the living matrix. This bit of knowledge can bring you the health secrets that only the rich and famous have known, until now. Listen Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness.
0: and put you on the best and surest path on your breastfeeding journey. Listen every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
4: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
2: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Falling Through the Cracks. Today, we're talking with Joe Stepanic. She's the author of Low FODMAP and Vegan. So, Joe, we've discussed, um, you know, what vegan is and the low FODMAP, which is probably, I think, setting some people for a bit of a loop, maybe opening up some doors for them if they are um, suffering with IBS that we explained earlier as well. Um, but, you know, it is... It, Is there any tips that you can give somebody if they're just getting started on this, if they think this might be happening? How does somebody get started?
3: Well, the first thing I would suggest is to get the book, Low FODMAP and Vegan, because there's a lot of information on the web, but a lot of it is incorrect. A lot of it is contradictory and confusing. So, That can be pretty scary because one list might say this food is okay and the other list says it isn't. So in the book, I have the most current, up-to-date information, and that is the place to check. It will really provide some clear guidance on what to do and the first steps to take. And I also have a website, ibsvegan.com, and I also have information there about FODMAPs. I also have the latest information on scientific updates and research and uh, support and a blog that I produce a couple times a month that provides support and information. So there's a lot that they can turn to, that people can turn to, whether they are just newly diagnosed, Are concerned that they might have IBS or have had IBS for a long time. So, this information um, is valuable for everybody whether or not they're vegan.
2: Well, yeah, you know, and it sounds like it, whether you're, you don't have to be vegan to have IBS. So um, I think the, the FODMAP part is um, for anybody who's having difficulty, you know, with the bloating and, and all that that we spoke about earlier, um, it's worth a try to see if these sugars are just something that they're having difficulty with. Um, now, I know there's a lot of research on, on FODMAP, and it, it seems to me that it's been, you um, Recommended more often by doctors as well for people to try to follow? Are you finding that? Yes,
3: absolutely, which is great. It's wonderful to finally see that the mainstream conventional medical community is aware of this now and is advising their patients about it. It's so important and it's so helpful. It's been found that at least 75% of people with IBS who follow a low FODMAP diet find that their symptoms are improved or at least not triggered. And mitigating symptoms is really key to living a, a life with quality.
2: Um, so that's significant. Um, so one thing I know that would be difficult is... Um you know, like food labels. And we know um, from this discussion that, you know, garlic and onions are going to be in a lot of packaged food. But is there anything else um, that people should know about reading food labels? Um, Well, it's important to know that in the U.S. at least,
3: that food labels are, uh, ingredients are listed by the quantity in the food. So, manufacturers are required to list the ingredients by their prevalence. So, if an item is way down at the bottom, and there are a lot of other ingredients, and then you see onion way at the bottom, somebody with IBS might find that that particular food is tolerable. Um, so, that is is really valuable. I have tips in the book on what to look for in terms of reading labels in um, ingredients that you might not recognize initially as being potentially problematic. So I would, again, recommend the book to see what you should look for in addition to knowing that um, how ingredients are listed. That can make a, a huge difference.
2: Well, I know that that's one challenge when when you start um, changing things, and and especially when it comes to changing how you're eating, that um, you know you always are having to read labels and to go through things. But um, having you know the tips in your book, I think, is um, really helpful because the the learning curve is a little smaller, <laughs> yeah. and uh, you know, and and knowing that you might be able to tolerate things and and. Uh, Um, that you might still be able to have some of that prepared food because I know people generally feel overwhelmed and not enough time to be able to prepare everything and that, you know, in this day and age is just really difficult to do.
3: Right, and when you're not feeling well, and this is really significant, at least it is for me, uh, when you're not feeling well, you don't feel like cooking, you don't feel like preparing anything, food isn't appetizing at all, some people just don't have much appetite when they have IBS and they're not feeling well or they're having a flare-up. So having food ready, easy to make, that will keep in the refrigerator a while is is so important. And so I made the recipes in the book to be suitable in that regard. I wanted the recipes to, first of all, be comforting and to not trigger symptoms, to be low and very low in FODMAPs, especially for people who are at that elimination stage or who just have multiple food triggers like I do. And I also wanted the recipes to be easy and to keep for a long time. There are many things that I have alternatives for in the book that are hard to find, but we really, really like and depend on seasonings. For example, I have several seasoning mixes that are free of FODMAPs that will keep for months and months on the shelf in the pantry or, um, seasoning Pastes and sauces that will keep for a long while in the refrigerator so that when you don't feel like eating much beyond a bowl of rice and maybe a couple steamed veggies that you have some flavorful sauce ready that you can put on them or uh, a handy seasoning mix that you can put on your dish. Um, so I really wanted to to let people know that You can make these things, you can make them in advance, and the things that you can't have, for instance, ketchup or sriracha sauce that are typically filled with onion or garlic, I have alternatives for those. So you can still have really
2: flavorful food, but it won't trigger your symptoms. Well, that sounds pretty exciting to me. <laughs> um, you know, that's what most people want is they miss out on on all those things. So to have those those options in your book, I think as like you said, it opened doors for you. And I think there's potential to open doors for for other people in the same situation. Um, so can you just share with us what one of your favorite recipes in your book is? I have so many
3: because they're, like I said, they're ones that I want to be able to make that are comfort foods that I can turn to because I don't feel good a lot of the time. And so when I don't feel, when I I don't feel good, I want something It's going to really be a comfort food. One of the ones that I really like because it's so simple to make and it's just, so satisfying, and it tastes like Thanksgiving any day of the year, and that's my pumpkin pie mousse, Mm. and it's great for breakfast, it's great as a snack, and it's great as a dessert. So if you need to eat smaller meals and you want something in between um, throughout the day, sometimes people who have IBS do much better on smaller meals several times a day than just a couple big meals because the more food you eat, that can be a trigger too. If you overeat almost anything, if you overeat, but if you just have a large meal, that can be a trigger in and of itself. So having little snacky type things that are satisfying can also be helpful. But I like to have the pumpkin pie mousse for breakfast and This makes two servings, and it calls for one ripe banana, and the riper the banana, the better. Um, It's harder to digest unripe bananas, and the ripe ones are higher in antioxidants, so those are the ones you want to go for, the ones that are speckled. And one-half cup of canned pumpkin puree, that's the unflavored pumpkin. um, That's canned, and it's very smooth. One-quarter cup of almond milk, and you can Make your, use your own almond milk. Oh, I have a recipe in the book for it that's very nice and light, not too rich or heavy um, but you can also use a commercial brand or you can use <clears throat> excuse me, any other plain low FODMAP non-dairy milk or even light coconut milk. Two tablespoons of creamy peanut butter, two tablespoons of pure maple syrup, A half a teaspoon ground cinnamon, a quarter teaspoon ground ginger, one eighth teaspoon ground nutmeg, and a pinch of cloves or allspice. And all you do is put all of that into a food processor or blender and process it until it's smooth. And that makes two servings. You just pour it into two small custard cups. And you can either serve it at once or you can cover it tightly and chill it up to a couple of hours. And if you want something super special, you can sprinkle chopped toasted pecans on each serving.
2: Um, well that sounds delicious and I think I'm hungry now <laughs> um, and it you know it sounds like a good recipe is you know falls about to start too and we're gonna um, Canadian Thanksgiving is is a little earlier than American Thanksgiving so um, that that sounds um, like a, a good pumpkin pie recipe Um <laughs> So, um, one other thing I know might be going through some people's heads is we spoke about earlier that IBS can make you feel really limited in social situations. So, what do people do when they're on this restrictive FODMAP diet and they're going to a restaurant, say, how, how do they get around not knowing everything that they're eating? It's, it can be
3: difficult. Um, it can help if you call ahead to find out what might be available, um, one of the easiest things I find is just a simple baked potato, some steamed vegetables, maybe with a little olive oil or a little balsamic vinegar or another type of, of good vinegar, red wine or a, a champagne vinegar. Um, you can also have that on a small salad and just make sure that there are no onions on the salad or other ingredients that might be triggers for you. It's boring, but it's safe. <laughs> and the other thing to bear in mind is that even though IBS is really a challenge, that it, it does not progress to more serious diseases such as inflammatory bowel disease or cancer. So what happens when we eat foods that are triggers, we're going to feel bad. That's a given. But we're not going to feel bad forever. We might have a flare-up or we might have a great day and do surprisingly well and, and not have a flare-up. But if we do, we know it's just going to last a couple days and we will recover. And we won't be any worse for the wear except for those days that we felt horrible. So it's important to keep that in mind. If you want to socialize, if you really feel you want to have a piece of cake um, or a piece of bread, go ahead and do it and enjoy yourself. Or if if you are worried, have something to eat beforehand and just nibble when you go out. That's often the easiest way to handle it. And then when you get home, have something you know is safe.
2: Okay, well, this um, th- I think that's really good advice as well, especially until you, you figure out what you're really sensitive to or if you're in a situation where you just have absolutely no control. There's a couple choices there for people. Um, so is there a way that people can get a hold of you? I know you gave your website address, um, or you have a website. Can you just provide that with us now in case anybody has any questions about this? Sure, it's ibsvegan.com.
3: And they can subscribe to the newsletter there, so they'll always stay on top of the latest blog information and um, also visit the site regularly to stay on top of the latest news and science information. I'm also on Facebook, IBS Vegan. Um, on the website, I really can't answer personal questions I re- because everybody's situation is so different and I can't do any diagnosis or give medical advice, but I am there for support if people need uh, help in terms of, well, what, what food might be safe or what recipe might be safe. And also, uh, i post food-related blogs as well as information-related blogs on the website, again, IBSVegan.com. And on the Facebook page, IBSVegan, I do also post information and primarily recipes or videos that are suitable.
2: Okay. Well, I'm also you on Twitter. <laughs> okay, great. I want to thank you so much for joining me today. This was a great show. Thank you. I appreciate being here. I really do. So today we were speaking with Joe Stepanek, who is the author of Low FODMAP and and Vegan. And this was a really great show for anybody who um, has IBS or just trying to figure out what their digestive um, complaints are, if this is something that's uh, related. So um, the book is available on Amazon and pretty easy to find. Thank you so much for tuning in and make today a great day.